Okay, so we are in Philippians, and we are beginning a new series, and this series is called Gratitude Always, because as we go through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, we come back again and again and again to a profound sense of gratefulness that we see in Paul, and if we can leave this time in Philippians with nothing more than an increased ability to be grateful as an outpouring of being a Christian and a follower of Jesus, then I think it would be time well spent. Uh, there is nothing like being grateful. It's a wonderful feeling. It's a wonderful thing. We believe that gratefulness is based on circumstances, but we also know that it's not. We kind of believe contradictory things when it comes to gratefulness. And so I think that it's important to spend time looking at, at what leads to this in Paul and what does the church in Philippi have to show us as well. This morning, we're going to start out in the craziest of places, Chapter 1, verse 1, and uh, we're going to read through the first passage here, 1 through 11. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to that. I'll put it up on the screen, and we will jump right in. Really small font, sorry. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So what we see here in this first passage, first and foremost, is the way that Paul feels about this church. He loves this church a lot. There is a profound sense of community with these people. We see it in the way Paul talks about them and the things that he says about them right here in the very beginning of his letter. Now, Paul is very invested in this group. He started this church. He was ministering in Philippi, and he came upon, years before this, um, a group of women. Because there was, no, uh, there was no tabernacle or place for Jewish people to worship, he came upon a group of women outdoors who were praying. They gathered to pray, and he shared the news of the gospel with them, and they responded. And then they came back with him, and they formed this Christian community, and that ultimately became the church in Philippi. So he was there from the beginning, and he saw them through some of their very earliest stages, and has a close relationship with them, you can tell since then. He's appealed to them throughout their time as a church, raised money from them for missions and for his own work and for others. And he now writes to them with these tremendous feelings of fondness and of love. Now, this is not entirely common of a pastor writing a letter to a church. 
Uh, if you were thinking of a well-known evangelist, apostle, church-planting pastor who just got to sit down and write letters to churches, uh, they would probably not associate the idea of that with someone having really nice things to say. In fact, we often think of that as, as an opportunity, but somebody might be critical. Uh, Francis Chan, a really well-known author and pastor, recently wrote a book. It just came out a couple of weeks ago, and it was called uh, Letters to the Church. I haven't read the book. I don't know a ton about it yet, but I know that when I even see that title, I think, uh-oh, church is in trouble, right? Because if Francis Chan is writing the letters of the church, here we go, right? And then when you read a lot of Paul's letters to the church in the New Testament, other than this one, you read some pretty harsh things. There are some churches that have really blown it or some churches that are in areas where they're allowing the culture to kind of seep in and change what they believe and the way that they do things and the values they have as Christians. And he does not mince words with them. He is harsh. He rebukes them at times. He tells them to stop it, to knock it off. Sometimes he even says, you're not being a great church right now. You're not doing a great job as a church. But here with this church in Philippi is different. So he asked this question, why does Paul love this church so much? What is it about them that he is so crazy for, that he is so crazy about? Because I would like to be that way. I would love to be able to say that of our church. I'd love for Paul to be able to look at our church even, um, and that if he was going to write us a letter, that it would be something this positive. And there's two things that he says here that give us a reason. He says, this is why I feel the way I do for you. He says in verses three through five, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So the first reason why Paul is so fond of this church, why he loves this church so much is simply because they are partners with him in the gospel and they have been since day one. Partners with him in the gospel is a big deal for someone like Paul. They, this is a group of people in a church that is characterized by having said, as followers of Jesus, what that means for us is that we want to make more followers of Jesus. We want to proclaim the gospel. We want to get it out there. We want to see the kingdom grow. We don't just want this to be about us. Now, if you know anything about the church, about any religious group of people that get together and form that oftentimes it's not about others. It's not about the sake of proclaiming something, even if they say that it is. It's about something very different. And there's probably a reason why Paul is so enthusiastically in favor of this church and loves them so much when we look at the other letters that he even writes to other churches. Because this group of people have partnered with him in the very mission of God and saying, we're going to reach the lost. That's who we're going to be as a church. That's what we're going to do as a church. What he's essentially saying is to be on the right track is to be a group of people who are pursuing the mission of God. So there's all these things that we would associate with like a good church, right? Like what's a good church? What's a healthy church? What's a church I'd want to be a part of? What Paul's saying here, we can see to the Philippians, is an amazing church, a great church, a strong church, one that I'm proud of, that I love, that there's a sense of community, and then I have these incredibly fond feelings for, is a group of people and a church that are a part of the mission of God itself. A group of people that aren't united by self-interest, but interest in reaching others. We think about the things that we would say make a good church. Maybe the ability to gain knowledge as a group of people, right? Good church is a place where you go and, and a lot of things are learned. People get smart. They learn a lot about the Bible. They're really smart Bible people. 
It's a technical term. It's a group of people that have sacrificed a lot, right? They give up a lot, right? Never mind that Jesus said, uh, go and learn what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. They forgot that teaching and they looked at the Pharisees and went, it's all about giving up as much as we possibly can. If we are, div- if we are seen as a group of people that just gave up all the good stuff and did all the hard stuff all the time, the sacrifice that we have would make us a good church. Growth, right? I mean... The idea of growing, even growing quickly, the idea of a church that gets big with a lot of people that that reaches a lot in that sense, has a lot of people sitting in the chairs on a Sunday morning and services that grow again and again and again, that's clearly probably a sign of a good church. What we recognize is that it isn't these things that measure the health of a church. What measures the health of a church is the church's ability to see the vision of God, the mission of God, and to pursue that mission as a part of who they are. It's about being about something that is ultimately for God and for others and not for ourselves. Because so much of the things that we can do when we're honest can be for ourselves, can be to have a better experience or be a part of a community that we like a lot. This is a group of people that isn't united by self-interest, but the interest of others. And this is what mission does, is it changes our focus. It makes us more united. It's kind of one of the weird things about following Jesus. When you don't live for yourself, it ultimately ends up changing you into what seems to be a better person. When the focus isn't on you, you grow. When it's all about you, you don't. We think about the reasons people are unhappy with churches, the reasons people leave churches, the reasons people don't like one certain church over another. Some might say, oh, it's the teaching. I don't like the kind of teaching that happens there. Or maybe that's something people like about the church. Or maybe it's the music. I don't like the music. The music is, is not something that I, I'm into or that I relate to. I don't like how things look. I don't like the paint on the walls. I don't like the classes that they teach in the classrooms. I don't like the snacks that they give in the classes that they teach in the classrooms. There's the, I, I, I love the people or I can't stand the people. There's this, there's this guy that corners me in the parking lot for 30 minutes and won't stop talking to me or something, and it drives me crazy every single week, and now I go out the back door or something. It drives me crazy. These are all the things that we, that we really, when we think about, we're honest about church, like, yeah, these are the kinds of things that really get to us, really drive us crazy. Things that ultimately end up even deciding what kind of a church we're a part of, what kind of a group of people we're a part of, rather than necessarily saying the mission of God. One of the things I recognize even in my first year here as a lead pastor is that the idea of value comes up a lot uh, when you're new to something. The idea of asking the question, as we've talked about our vision as a church, what do we value, right? What do we value? Who do we value? What kinds of things do we value? People ask me that. What do you value? Who do you value? What kinds of things do you value, right? Do we value families? Do we value marriages? Do we value lives of holiness? Do we value the idea that in an un ever-changing culture and world that we will be fixed and stable and that we will choose to be who we are regardless of those things outside? Is that something that's a value for us? Do we value missions, whether it's here, or do we value missions internationally or abroad? Do we value youth? Do we value America, the country that we're a part of? What do we value? What matters most to us? If we look at Scripture... If we look at what Paul is saying about this church in Philippi, what we see is that what we value is the mission of God. That's the reason the church was created. 
Keep in mind, before this, there was Jesus. He was pretty good at this. And he said, I'm going to go away, and now you're going to do it. And we're like, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, Jesus. And he says, don't worry, I'll give you a Holy Spirit. It'll empower you. It'll be a counselor. You'll be fine. But this is the plan. As it is often said, the church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. And so what we value first and foremost is the thing that is defined by why we were created to begin with. The Great Commission. We will go and reach those who are not reached. We will go make disciples of everybody, teaching them the things that Jesus taught us. That's first and foremost primarily what we value. And we say that's the priority. And that if we can make that what we're about, if we can make that how we judge success, and the things that we do and the way we spend our money and the way we spend our time and the way we try to live our lives and the way we are involved with people outside this church, if we can do that, then we will be a good church with this profound sense of community. Because here's the crazy thing about a mission is that when you live for a mission, you are more united than when you're a group full of people living for themselves. We see that. We see that in, in, in nations. We see that in groups of people that give of themselves for the sake of their country. We see there being a sense of unity and bonding that comes from saying, I don't live just for me. I live for this other thing that we all live for. This is why we see unity. This is why Paul loves this so much in the church. You see, following Jesus isn't easy, it turns out. He calls people to a lot of hard things. In fact, what he calls us to are the hardest things, it seems. They're not burdensome things. We talked about that last week. But he calls us to hard things. He takes every value, every priority that we would have without him, and he challenges it and turns it around and says, don't be about that thing. And yet what he promises is that if you're not about that thing, you'll experience freedom not the burdens of that thing. Jesus called people to hate their families. Now, he didn't say literally, you're supposed to hate everyone in your family. But he was talking to a people in a culture in which your family determined everything about your identity and your purpose in life. You don't have to tell me what my purpose in life is because every morning before I'm ready for it to, it comes running into my bedroom and it wakes me up. And then I spend the day cleaning up after it. That's my purpose right now, it seems. And yet Jesus says, you're to take all of that, the very people that you're a part of, the people that you're raising up for the next generation that you're living for, the parents that you're trying to live well to make proud and to give a good name to your family, you take all that and you put it in the back seat compared to me, and we say, that's my purpose, and he says, not anymore, I'm your purpose. He says, I call you to give up your possessions sacrificially. And you say, but possessions give me security and they're the way that I enjoy my life. And that's actually what I want is I want a life that has some security in it. And I want to be able to enjoy the life that I'm living. And Jesus says, that's not what your security's in. And that's not how enjoyment happens in life anymore. It's not true enjoyment and true, true security. He says, you're going to have this urge to be a part of a religious group of people and you're just going to have a bunch of rules and traditions and rituals and these things that you live for that are empty of me in relationship. And we're going to be like, yeah, I like doing that because it makes me feel like a good person. 
if I go show up to church and if I follow the rules and if I try hard enough and if I act the way all these people act and we say it's a good way to act, then at the end of the day, I feel like I'm a good person and that actually means a lot to me. And Jesus says, that needs to not be who you are anymore. Is somebody who has to prove that they're some kind of a good person by these things that they do. He says, literally, give your life for the sake of the gospel. Whether it's in the way the Wymores have given their lives by saying, we're going to literally give the agenda of our lives, where we live, what we do for the sake of the gospel. You may not know this, but missions work is not particularly lucrative. It's not actually something people do because they make more money than if they stay here and pursue some other line of work, right? Okay, yeah, that's true, okay. I was, <laughs> what if they were like, actually, we're doing pretty well. But we're actually called at times, people are called over the course of the church history to give their very lives for Jesus. Why would anyone do that? Because you believe in eternity is why you would do that. You would say the way that I live this life here right now, the very agenda that I have, whether it's to give your life or as many have said, it's actually harder to live for something than to even necessarily die for it all the time. To live your life for something, to give the whole agenda of your life, this one life you get it seems, to this thing. Why would we do that? Jesus says, because you believe in eternity and you believe that it will be okay and that you will have me. That's why you can do that. To sacrifice our reputations for the sake of him. We say, I care about what other people think of me. My reputation's important. And he says, well, you're not going to care about what they think of you as much as what I think about you anymore. He even calls us to spend time with people that we don't seem to always want to spend time with. And we're like, listen, Jesus, I literally live my life the way I do so that I can not be around people I don't like and I can be around people I like. And he goes, not anymore. Jesus calls us to pretty difficult things. He tells us that if we live this way, we will experience freedom in him. And so we together in doing these things recognize that we do this, we do it as a part of the mission of God and that that brings this profound sense of community. The other thing that Paul says here, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says that he feels this way about them, that he holds them in his heart this way because they are partakers with him of grace. That's what he says. So there's two reasons why he loves his church so much. They're partnering with him in the mission of God and they are partakers with him in grace. This idea of God's grace, changing a person's life so much that you are now bound to other people who have experienced his grace is what Paul's talking about. He's saying, why do I feel this strongly about you? Because we all know what the grace of God is. We've experienced it. And because of that, I, I have a love for you as a people. There is a stronger sense of community here. This is something that we deeply desire. We were created to live in community with other people. Now, not everyone wants to live in community. Some people want to be completely alone, completely isolated as much as possible. But usually that's not the way that you start out. Usually there's a reason, something that leads to somebody wanting to be that way and live that way. And we are created to live in community together. We want this kind of community that Paul's talking about. And if we ever feel like we have to live our lives without it, 
without any kind of a sense of a people that we belong to or a sense of community, then there's a part of us, I think, that dies. Paul's saying that that sense of community comes from experiencing the grace of God and being with other people who have been so changed by that. The grace of God like breaks down your life and rebuilds it into something totally new and totally different. And that binds you together with these other people that you could be different in every other way and yet still be bound together on this profoundly deep level. This was important for these people in Philippi because of the way that Philippi was. Here it is, the most exciting part of the first sermon in any series, maps. I even found out last service I have a laser pointer. Look at that. I'm just gonna use it for my cell phone in the back. And you guys, no, I'm just kidding. So anyway, here's how maps work for me. It's this simple. If you wanna know where Greece is, it's like right around there, Athens is here. Okay, there you go. So that's kind of what we're looking at. There's the boot. You all know where the boot is, right? You all know the boot. Ireland's up there. I'll just say all these names and kill some time. No. So this is where Greece is. And, and hey, where's Philippi, you wonder? Well, let's, let's, Greece is right around there. And then Philippi is right up here where this big star is. There you go. So it's right at the top of the Aegean Sea. So you go back. There's the sea. Go forward. There it is. And that's where Philippi is, okay? Philippi's at a pretty important spot on the Aegean Sea. It's a growing community. It's a growing place. And a lot of people live there. And they're actually pretty happy who live there. Um, Now, Rome had taken this place over as a colony before Paul wrote this letter and before the church was formed there. And when Rome did that, they did something really, really smart. And it was for two reasons. You see, Rome had this problem. They had too many people. They didn't have anywhere to put them. So they kept taking these colonies and these places, and then they would like be like, hey, you can go live out there in, in, uh, in Philippi. That sounds nice, right? It's out by the ocean. It's out by the sea. It's great, right? Be a farmer, right? So they would send people out. They had to kind of get people out somewhere. But the other thing that they chose to do in trying to send their people out was in areas like this that were very important for the Roman Empire, important for trade, important that people stay loyal to the Roman Empire. They knew that loyalty doesn't just come from rules and fear of force. Loyalty comes from really being bought into something. And so the people that they sent to occupy Philippi, to live there, to settle there, that they gave land and they gave livelihoods to there, were people that had fought for the Roman army veterans in Roman um, occupations and Roman wars. And so think about that for a second, right? You, you fill an entire area with people who have fought for a country. You will have a group of the most patriotic people ever. And so Philippi is filled with people who love Rome, who, who recognize the supremacy of Rome. And most public things that began, began with some sort of a pledge to Rome, a pledge almost to a form of, 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 almost to the idea that in the way that you would pledge to a deity, in a way that you would like praise them. This was how people began everything that they did. I say this for a reason because uh, one of the things we recognize about, about following Jesus is that it can actually be difficult to do in a place where everyone else around you is happy with their government, with their way of life, not following anything like Jesus, thinking Rome's gonna take care of us, Rome's gonna do everything that we need, we're fine with them. And so knowing that the way Jesus calls us to live challenges all of these key things about life and about culture, you recognize that it can be a very isolating thing for a Christian. That for a person to follow Jesus in a place like this can be very isolating. And so Paul recognizes that the thing that binds these people together and doesn't cause them to feel like a bunch of loners is that these are the people who live in Philippi alongside you who have been transformed by the grace of God. It's changed you in such a big way that they are your family now. And that the most important thing that you can have in common with someone else isn't even your blood relation. It isn't who you served alongside in military battle. 
It isn't the government that you pledge allegiance to or not. It is the God who has forgiven you, who has given you his grace. Grace, this word for grace means kindness, and it's specific to the person that gives it. So if you go to the bank and someone gives you money and you walk out, you don't go, everybody, you're never going to believe the nicest guy in the world is working at the bank. He's just giving everybody money. You know, this guy's like the nicest guy, okay? You go get gas and they put gas in your car. You don't go, guys, they're giving gas. The guy's just, that guy is literally just giving gas to everybody. You don't do that because you pay your money, because that's your money in the bank, because you've earned it, because it's a transaction. That's not kindness. That's deserved. But a person who is kind and gracious This is the person that's being talked about, this word graciousness. So any gift that a gracious God gives is his grace and it is his kindness. And they're joined by this gift that they've received. This grace is something that is so big, it's so powerful that you know when it's been near you in the way that you know when radiation has been near you, in a way that you know when the sun has been near you and it's burned you. There are things that we experience collectively sometimes that are so profound that they bind us together, no matter how different we are. I cannot think of any better example of this in my own life than on 9-11. I remember waking up that morning because my mom woke me up. She called me, said, turn on the TV. You need to see what's happening right now. And I remember September 11th, and I remember that whole day. Remember everything that happened on that day, and I remember feeling that one time in my entire life like every single person that I see today Every single person that I come into contact with today, we're all thinking the same thing. We're all feeling the same things. We're all kind of suffering in the same ways. That everybody in America was feeling that way, that we were feeling attacked, that we were feeling vulnerable and afraid and angry and hurt and all of these different things. And it actually became a time we saw in this great tragedy that bound us together. Probably more than I would say any other time in my life as an American, I saw unity amongst people because we had all been through this traumatic, profound experience together. Everyone, everyone knew what happened and everyone was living that that day especially. This is what I mean when I talk about God's grace impacting you in such a profound way that it changes who you connect with because it defines now your people. Paul's saying Our people, my people, are the people that have experienced the grace of God. That's why they're with me. That's why they're connected with me. So he talks about them and he says that there are these things that he wants for them. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is telling the church that he loves, who love Jesus and are following him, who are bound by the grace of God and on God's mission, he is saying, I want you to know, church, that I am sure of this thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That that when you choose to follow Jesus, that he begins a good work in you at that point. And in the rest of your life, he is doing a good work in you as you pursue Jesus and follow him and that he will bring it about to completion at the day of Jesus. Now, Paul knows this is a hard thing to believe. And so he says, I am sure of this. Because many times, most of us would say, are you sure that a good work is being done in me? Because I don't feel that way. And that's not the experience that I've had in this life. That this good work would ever come about to completion? 
The way we kind of think is like, uh, you know, maybe you get saved and then you're just a mess and then one day you're like an angel or something and you're perfect and then you can fly and have powers and then it's totally different. And I don't really know what the connection is between the two, but I'm just going to kind of fumble my way through things until I get to there. He says, that's not the way it works. The way that we describe how this works, this idea of, of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus is that when you are saved, you are consecrated, which means you're set apart. Jesus has now been able to work in your life so that you are no longer a slave to sin. You actually have a choice. And so you're now consecrated and set apart, and you now can spend the rest of your life being continually sanctified, becoming more like Jesus, giving over the parts of your body and the things of your life and the way that you live and the things in your heart and your mind, giving all those things over to becoming more like Jesus. And as you do that, a good work is being done in you. There are vastly more people who have said yes to following Jesus and then walked away from him than there are people who have said yes to following Jesus and have continued to see a good work being done in them until the day of completion. This is something that we know is true. Jesus saw this in his own time. When he taught people and they came to him in the thousands, he knew that many will say yes, many will like what they hear initially, but not most even will continue to follow me. And so Paul is encouraging the church and saying, continue to see that good work being done in your life. Continue to work out your faith in fear and trembling, knowing that God will bring it about to completion. And he says this to them because he knows it's gonna be hard. We're gonna see in Philippians that this church is dealing with a lot of difficult things. They're enduring suffering and they're dealing with persecution. And his encouragement to them is to keep going because God's doing a good work in you. Know that that's happening. Here's what the, the good work looks like. Here's what it looks like. His, he, he prays a prayer for the church and he says, here's what I want to see in you guys uh, because you're, you're, you're great and I want you to grow and I want you to grow in the right way. Here's what he says. He says, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Are you getting the idea yet? He's really into them. And it is in my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So in order for them to be pure, in order for them to be blameless in the day of Christ, to be filled with this fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus, he says in his prayer, he wants their love to abound more and more. He wants them to have knowledge and discernment. And he wants them to be able to approve what is excellent. These are the things that he prays for them. He wants them to have a love that abounds. Not just a love that is simple and basic, not just a love that is easy and convenient, but he wants them to have a love that abounds. And here's what that looks like. We see this when the Pharisees are giving Jesus a hard time. In Matthew 22, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them a lawyer, of course, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It is true that if we can love the way that Jesus tells us to love, we got nothing else to worry about. 
He says, you love God. You love him with everything in you, everything in you, because that's why you were made. You were formed and created and made simply so that you could love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You should also love your neighbor. Here's the easiest way to describe loving your neighbor to a bunch of selfish people. Love them as much as you love yourself. If you can do that, you're doing fine. You're doing better than anybody else can do. So love God this way, in a way that abounds, with your whole being, with your whole heart, with your whole life, with your mind, with your will, with your very soul, with the center of who you are. And then try to actually love other people just the way that you love yourself. This is what it is to have love that abounds. This isn't a love that is easy. This isn't a love that has limits. This isn't a love that stops. And one of the things that we learn when we try to love this way is that love isn't a commodity like money is and natural resources are in this world. Love is not something that runs out. Love is not something that we only have so much of. Love is something that we can actually give to all of the people that we interact with if we choose to. Most of the time, we simply don't choose to because we think, I've only got so much. Only got so much that I can do. Only got so much that I can give. His prayer is that the church of people would be people that others would look at and that they would say, they really love. Not just in an easy, not thoughtful, not worked out sort of way, because real love takes work. He goes on and he says he wants them to to, to have all knowledge and discernment, knowledge and all discernment. He wants them to actually have minds that can not only learn things, but they can discern between things. Knowledge is the actual taking in of information, which we need, but even more important, I think, than that is this idea of being able to discern. The phrase discern refers to the ability to distinguish between things, between one thing or another, one option or another, figuring out what is the right thing to do or to think or to say or to believe rather than just a bunch of facts. There's a difference between knowledge and discernment. And we are to have minds that can actually discern based off the situations that we're in. That's what Paul's praying for the church. Both my kids are in school right now. And uh, they are being, they're really young and they're just being, it's like constant information now. It's like every day they come home and they tell you about the thing that they learned. You know, my daughter learned about elephants on Friday. That's a big deal, it's a lot of info. And I asked her, what would you learn about elephants? She said, my teacher says that their ears are the sweetest part, that they have sugar in them. And I was like, did you just eat elephant ears? She's like, no, but now I'm kind of curious. Like, is that all they did when they learned about elephants? I don't know, maybe her teacher just likes elephant ears and doesn't know about elephants. But my daughter learns about elephants. My son, every day, he's like, he's telling me all these different things he's learning. And it's a lot of information. It's a lot of stuff he's taking in. But that's not actually the exhausting part for my kids right now. The exhausting parts for my kids is not the knowledge, it's the discernment. It's the actual figuring out between different things about how to live and what to do. That's the stuff that stumps us and we're trying to help them learn. Because right now my son's got this friend that he keeps getting in trouble with at school. And whenever it's like he's attracted to this one kid because the kid's funny and he does stuff that's kind of bad and I can tell that Tegan really likes it and he goes to him every time and then he started getting in trouble with him. And so I talked to him about this and I realized it's a tremendous amount of discernment for a six-year-old to have to have in their mind to go, what do I do? I have this friend. I like being with them. They're funny. 
Uh, I enjoy that, but then I get in trouble, so I shouldn't do it. Should I go away from them? Should I ignore them? Should I tell them to stop? Should I tell the teacher, right? What do I do? This is discernment. This is much of life. This is where it gets complicated. Actually knowing what to do in situations. I've never been so like, I think that where, I think that where discernment comes in to my mind a lot of the time is when I think about counseling people who are going through difficult situations, because I constantly recognize the need for good discernment in doing that. You can talk to somebody whose marriage is really struggling and falling apart, and there's two ways you can try to help them. One, you can just say whatever you think makes sense for you. You just go, well, you just need to tell them to get out. You just need to do this. You need to do that, because that's Whatever makes sense to me in the moment, that's, all, that's about as far as I'm going to think of it, right? If God put you in front of me, he wants you to do what I would do. And I'm not going to think too hard. I'm just going to tell you what I would do. And that's what you should do, right? Then there's like actually the times that I've talked to people and I've thought, I, I honestly feel like I could tell you to do this and then maybe read in a book on marriage somewhere or on relationships somewhere that that was the opposite of what I should have told you to do. And it should have been this thing. I was talking with somebody once who was in a relationship that was abusive with someone that they were dating. And the moment that I heard that this woman was in an abusive relationship, my first instinct was to get in there and to just say, like, you don't even have a choice anymore. You are getting out. Everything has to change. I'm going to make sure it happens. You don't get to decide. And then I talked to somebody who was a counselor who works with these relationships, and they said, the reason that people are drawn to relationships like that is that they want to be controlled. They want people to, to tell them what to do and, to, and to, to boss them around. And the worst thing that you can do is to rush into the situation and tell them what to do and to do all of that stuff. And I thought that is literally the most counterintuitive thing I've ever heard. But that's discernment. And that's what's so complicated about life is that life is filled with that kind of stuff. And Paul's desire for the church is not just that they be a bunch of people who know a lot of stuff about the Bible, which is also true. That's knowledge. But it is discernment. It is the ability to, in a situation, say what is actually right according to these things I've learned and to think through it. And that's what he wants for them is to have minds that are sharp and that discern. We read this in Romans 12. Romans 1 through 11 is 11 chapters of the Bible dedicated to what the gospel really is, like laying out the gospel. And then starting in Romans 12, it's now here's what you do. And that's why Romans 12 starts with therefore. He says, in light of the gospel, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So this right here, this act of sacrifice, this is being sanctified. The language that Paul uses here in, uh, in Philippians when he says to begin a good work and that it will be brought to completion, those words begin a good, those ideas of begin a good work and that word for completion are words used in the Greek culture more abundantly than anywhere else in the idea of sacrifice. That when people would begin to do a sacrifice, they would begin the process of sacrifice and then they would complete it, they would bring it about to completion and that's the language that's used. When an animal's fully sacrificed or a ritual has been done by the people in the Greek culture, they would use that phrase. So what he's doing is he's also telling the people that my prayer is that your life that is now a sacrifice would be brought to completion, and this is what he's talking about here in Romans, that the response to the gospel is we offer ourselves up. We're a big group of people that have offered ourselves up as sacrifices, and he says, here's what that looks like. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that the testing that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
that we take our minds and that by testing things, we discern what is the will of God. And that is the way that we try to live. That is what we try to do. That is not a simple, basic thing. That is a complex thing. The last thing that he says, beyond wanting them to have minds that discern, is that he wants us to be able to approve what is excellent. To approve what is excellent means that he wants them to actually live in a way that is just simply the good life. He, like, you should be living a good life. That someone can look at you and they can say, that is the right way to live. Now, most of us are pursuing this anyway, so that's not too hard. But the word for approve, it's the way that you test something out through experimenting. So to approve something means I'm working out, I'm testing it out, I'm trying to find the right way out of all these different options. And then excellent is valuable. It's something that has ultimately been found to be valuable independent of, what, of the value that people placed on it. It's inherently valuable. So the difference between inherently valuable is water and diamonds, okay? Water, inherently valuable. We all need it or we'll die. Diamonds. We have placed value on them. Without diamonds, we would not die. Most of us. And so we are to test and approve to determine that which is excellent, meaning that which is valuable and good, not because someone says it's good today and it's not good tomorrow, not because it's good right now, but in 100 years it won't matter to anybody, but because it is timelessly good and excellent and valuable. You are to determine what those things are, and your life should reflect those things. It is not just what you know. It is what you do with what you know. When I think of this, I always think of the same thing, some of the professors that I had in college. I, was, I was, took a lot of history and philosophy classes, and I had these guys sometimes who were, or women, who were like brilliant with an area of like Latin American history at this one era of time. Like their whole world was that they knew literally everything about this one thing in history. But you often sat there going, could you, now this is in California, so you've got to make the jump here. Could you pump gas if you needed to, is what you would think. Like, if you had to get out of your car, you know, would you just be like, oh, this is, you know, if you, if you talked to a human being, would you know what that, how that worked, what that looked like? These are, these are people who have a tremendous amount of book smarts, but when it comes to the ability to actually implement, live out, or communicate it to other people even, it's like, where did it go, right? Lives aren't changed by teachers who are just brilliant with information. Lives are changed by teachers who are passionate about the information, who are passionate about the people learning it, and who want to convey that to those people, or maybe even who can live it out. And what Paul's talking about is he's talking about living lives for the church that are truly valuable and good. You do things that are timelessly good and important. In the end, he's ultimately talking about how we live and how we act. It says in Romans chapter 6, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What he's saying, this is the most physical language that can be used. You should quite literally be using your physical actions and your bodies to not do things that are sinful, but instead to turn those over to God for good works. 
Paul's prayer for the church is that their love would abound, that their minds would be able to learn and discern what is right, and that those things would be lived out in the way that they actually do things, with the actual physical things that they do and the choices they make and the relationships they have and the way they treat people. We're going to talk a lot in this series about the idea of gratitude because it's a theme that's evident. Here's how we know it's a theme that's evident here. Because Paul is writing, and he is clearly profoundly grateful for these people. He is so grateful for who they are and for the relationship that they have with him. And it seems like he is really enjoying even writing them a letter. And so you read his joy and you read his peace and you read the hope that he has. You read the gratitude that he has and you cannot help but think whatever is going on in this guy's life right now must be so good that he is truly a grateful person, that he has a lot to have joy in because this is how joy and peace and and gratefulness work, right? We learned from a very, very early age that grateful people are grateful because they have good things, right? No. We think that's how it works, and then we realize that's not at all how it works. But truthfully, the most grateful people, the most peaceful people, the most joyful people are usually not the people with all the good stuff or the consistently easy lives or the consistently, like, positive circumstances, that those who are profoundly grateful and profoundly joyful and profoundly peaceful are those who have somehow found a way to be that way regardless of what is happening right here, right now. I say that because Paul is writing this letter. Does anyone know where he's writing it from? From prison. He is in jail right now writing the happiest letter that you've ever read to the group of people that he is just happy to think about. And this letter that we get to read and go through for the next several months as a church is a letter written from a person in prison who is overwhelmed with gratefulness and joy. Why is that so? Because real gratefulness comes from two things. It comes from what has happened, and it comes from what will happen. It doesn't come from what is happening. There's, there's kind of a, a base level of temporary gratefulness. I would call it like a Christmas card gratefulness, right? This year, things were good. I'm grateful. I can, I can write it out in the letter this year, and things are good in this way, and I'm grateful in that way. But that's not a deep sense of gratefulness, a deep kind. The true gratefulness comes, and in Paul's case, and what we see here, and what we will see continually again and again and again, is the profound sense of gratefulness that we can experience comes from, first and foremost, what God has done. What God has done, the grace that binds us together, the mission that we are a part of, that saved us, that gave us life, that we are grateful for that. And that regardless of what happens now or in the future, that we have that. But good news, speaking of the future, because the other thing that gives us gratefulness is what is to come. And scripture is abundantly clear again and again and again, that there is an eternal inheritance, one that is undefiled, that is unfading, that is unchangeable. And that thing you are assured that God will take the good work that is happening and bring it about to completion regardless of how much of a failure it feels like you're being right now and how hard it it feels that things are right now. This is true gratefulness because of what we've already had and because of what we get to look forward to. This is tremendously important. 
And there is no better person for us to pay attention to when it comes to this than a person who's writing a letter from jail. Let's pray, because I want the last word to be jail. Father, thank you for the fact that even though we often have a very immature and juvenile understanding of gratefulness, one that says that those who have good things can be grateful and those who don't can't be, that we recognize early in life that that is not at all true. God, our desire is to be able to live and embody this kind of gratefulness. But it's hard for us. We are very focused on the now. For many of us, it's hard because life has been good and we're used to being grateful for the way things are in the present. It's caused us to lose sight of what you've done for us in the past. It's caused most of us to completely and totally lose sight of what you're doing in the future. And so our prayer, God, is that we would focus on those things, that as we spend time in worship, that as we spend time singing to you, that even right now, Lord, that you would use this time to reorient our minds, to focus, God, on what you have done, on who you are, on who you will be, the work that you're completing, and who you promise to forever be, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Father, we are grateful above all other things for who you are. We're grateful because you are a God who existed long before us, who created us. Created us to do this very thing, to worship you and to enjoy you. And Father, our prayer is that as we do this very thing, that we would be more fulfilled than by anything else that we could ever do. That all the things that we're called to, to turn from or walk away from in pursuit of Jesus isn't because you want our lives to be hard or painful, but it's because you want us to be truly free, to worship you, to glorify you, to live for you, the author of us. And so that's our prayer this morning that this time would be just a practice for the rest of our week and for the rest of our lives in worshiping you and everything that we do and glorifying you, Father. Father, we pray these words of we read in 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful he will surely do it. Lord, we need those statements that you will surely do it, that you are faithful because we struggle to believe even these basic things about you, Lord. So give us faith in you as we live this out this week, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.